Our second lesson is taken from the Gospel according to John. Let me begin to read at verse 1 of chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb and beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then entered in therefore the other disciple also who had first come to the tomb, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary, standing outside the tomb, weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned round and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. This morning, one of our technicians brought to me a piece of a news bulletin that came in over the UPI news machine. It says, in Uganda, they're still searching for ousted president for life, Idi Amin, and reports Amin have fled the country. The new government in Kampala today reported that just hours before its forces took control of the capital, Amin's dreaded Secret Service massacred more than 100 prisoners with grenades. It goes on to say that the ousted Ugandan president is, that they think he has reached the northern Ugandan border on his way to southern Sudan, that he hoped to reach either Libya or Iraq. The reason that I've read this is to show you how relevant the gospel is. There was a great Anglican missionary who went to Uganda. 
He went there to open the way and he was martyred for Christ and his name was John Hannington. And when they came to kill him, John Hannington said, Go tell the king that I die to open the way for Christ to come to Uganda. And so another dictator and murderer will go down in the pages of history. But Christ is the victor, and he will keep on being victor. This new and living way is shown for us when we stop at that place called Calvary. I remember once hearing a very moving sermon of a preacher who used to live near Chicago, and he had to ride the train out to Evanston to seminary, and there was one place on the, the train where the conductor would come through and call out the name of the station. There was a station out there close to a church, and near the church there was a cemetery, but there were no houses around there. But the church was called Calvary Church. And so the conductor had to come through the train saying, Calvary next, Calvary next, anyone here for Calvary? And there was never anyone for Calvary. It was a place of death. He said he would never forget how startled he was one evening when he was riding in a snow-swept storm some years after he'd been going to seminary and he'd come back to his old church again. And the conductor came through calling out his familiar words, Calvary next, Calvary next, anyone here for Calvary? The snow was swirling outside, but a man got up and put his collar up around his coat and pulled his hat down and started out in the snow and the darkness, and he wondered what on earth the man would be doing getting off the train at that desolate place of death. And he said he pressed his nose against the glass of the train window, and he could see a wife and some happy children that were waiting. And then off in the distance, he could see that they had finally built an apartment complex near there. And this man was going home. He was going home. And Calvary was away. We don't like to think about Calvary sometimes, but Calvary is necessary. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were rent, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after their resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened, and they said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Why did they say it was the Son of God? He claimed to be the Son of God. When he was on that cross, he cried out to God, Father, and even a Roman centurion could understand the connection that he was making, that he was claiming to be God's Son, and he uniquely gives him his title which is more than some silly theologians have done. He is the Son of God, and he shows it with great power and victory here at this place. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. I wonder what Caiaphas thought. 
He was the high priest. And the people thought he was half a God himself. Because once in a year, and only one time in a year, and not without the sprinkling of blood as a sacrifice for sin, could Caiaphas enter the holy place, and then the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And yet that veil, gorgeous with purple and blue and scarlet, carefully woven according to what God had prescribed, it was torn from top to bottom. It was torn, and it was saying to the world, and it's saying to the world today that the temple is no more. That this Jesus who said, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days I will raise it up again. And the greatest miracle he ever did, he did after he was dead. He raised his own body. He raised his body from the dead. And when he had cried with a loud voice and had yielded up the ghost and had died, no more paschal lambs need be slain. Well, the ultimate sacrifice for sin has already been taken care of there at Calvary. God exhausted himself. Nothing more. But he will vindicate what he has done by the mighty resurrection of his son from the dead. The people who had wondered what was behind that veil, the people of Gentiles who were kept out at a distance and were aliens and strangers, now then they have a new way, a way to God, and that way is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is so important for us to remember. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews could never get this out of his mind. And when he talked to those Christians who suffered terribly because they were believers in Jesus, and yet because they were Jews who said, give up this faith in Jesus as the Messiah and come back into Judaism, and pagan Romans who said, no, there's nothing to it at all. And the writer to the, of the epistle to the Hebrews says to them, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere hearts in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. These are words that tell us the reality of what it means to get through that veil and get to the living God. He has revealed himself in Jesus. And the mystery is there when you see this remarkable woman, Mary of Magdala, the people who make films and the people who write books have gotten so much superstition involved with the story of Mary of Magdala that it's difficult to preach about her because they can, there's so much embellishment of things that existed. We are told in Luke chapter 8 that this Mary of Magdala 
helped to support Jesus and that she was one out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she is not to necessarily be identified with a prostitute. This, of course, makes better Hollywood material, so they write it up that way. Uh, we don't know what the seven devils were. Scripture does not tell us, but we know it was horrible. We have seen a demon-possessed man who came out of the tombs who had a legion of demons. And after Jesus had delivered that man from the demonic powers which had invested him, you remember he wanted to go with Jesus. The people who have been freed from the power of the evil one want to be with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you go back to your own hometown and you tell them what good things the Lord has done for you. And we don't know what demons from which Mary of Magdala was delivered, but we know how much she loved Jesus, that she put the men to shame. She was out there where no woman ought to be, where those horrible Roman soldiers were at that wretched place of death amidst all that mockery. She stayed. But look how much Jesus reveals to her. She comes to the tomb on the first day of the week, and it was still dark. You know, you may go through some darkness in life and be numbed with the pain and the heartache that's there. But if you come to where Jesus is, and keep the faith, he will reveal himself to you. I'll never forget, as long as I lived, talking to a man who had spent 14 years in prison because of his faith in Jesus Christ in Romania. Three of the 14 years he had spent in solitary confinement where he never saw the blue of the sky, he never saw a blade of grass, where even the guards were felt on their souls so that he couldn't even hear human footsteps coming up and down the corridor. And he came to this country just when that idiot book by J.A.T. Robinson, God is Dead, had come out. And he said, if your God is dead, then do what Mary of Magdala did and go weep at his tomb till he comes back alive. He was a man who suffered for his faith and he knew what he was talking about. So Mary of Magdala went on that first day of the week while it was still dark. And she came to the tomb and saw that the stone had already rolled away. In one of the other records of the gospel, we are told that the women were wondering who would roll the stone away. A lot of worries that we have are answered by the great power of God. In Matthew 28, we are told that an angel from heaven descended and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Now I have an old German friend who said to me, whenever you preach on this, always tell the children that that angel from heaven descended and rolled the stone from the door and sat on it and laughed. He laughed because of the victory. He didn't roll the stone away for Jesus to come out. He rolled the stone away so the people could go in. Jesus was already gone. Those of you, I've had a number of people asking me about this uh, shroud of Turin that um, has created so much attention. I don't 
know much about it except the article that I read in some magazine the other day, but here we are told that the head cloth was wrapped separately from which Jesus, Jesus simply came through that thing and it just collapsed. And that headpiece would have been like a turban that just simply collapsed. And he was gone. That's why they note this. That's why when Mary of Magdala goes there and sees that he had already been taken away from the tomb, she ran and came to Simon Peter. Peter, we think, was older than John. And John was younger and more athletic and faster. And so he ran, they both started running toward the tomb. And uh, Peter was in better shape. Maybe he had been jogging or something. And, and he got there ahead and, uh, of John. Uh, 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 John got there ahead of Peter. And John got there. And in his contemplative way, he looked in and saw the place where the Lord had lain, but in great reverence and in typical keeping with his respectfulness, he didn't rush on into the tomb. And then Peter came, and in typical uh, Petrine way of doing stuff, uh, he just went right on into the tomb, impetuous and impulsive as he was. And he looked like this, he looked and saw the head cloth, he looked and he saw the other part, and he looked and he took all of this in. Uh, we are told that, that he looked at this, he looked at this, he looked at this. He was taking it in carefully. The clothes, the reason that so much attention is made of the grave clothes is that they bespoke the resurrection. And they make note of it here, and they take it. And they come back out of that tomb, wondering but still not able to believe the scriptures, what prophecy had said concerning Jesus, that he would rise again. You remember as he said, Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of God would be three days in death and then would rise again. Then a number of other scriptures which he applies to himself. Jesus made those applications. Yet they, didn't, they couldn't take it in. And these women couldn't believe it either. They had come there with some more uh, ointments and spices to put on his body. They thought he was still dead. But he was gone. He was gone. And then we have this scene, this extremely beautiful scene. The man just couldn't make it on television the other night who tried to make the film. I noticed that he was an unbeliever, and no unbeliever could ever make this scene. Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels sitting in white, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, notice the question, Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Did she really believe all these things she'd seen Jesus do? Did she really believe all those marvelous things that he had said? Why are you weeping? And she said, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She was still looking for a dead body. And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. We sing a Christmas carol called Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See, 
Hail the incarnate deity. Okay, the incarnate deity was veiled in flesh. And while he was veiled in flesh amongst them, they really could not appreciate the fact that God was clothed in human flesh walking amongst them. They had seen him eat. They had heard him preach. They had seen his miracles. How could they possibly believe that here is God? And then the veil is rent in two in the temple. And that tabernacle, that temple which he said would be raised in, four, in three days is raised up again. And now they're going to see him in a different light. And it's interesting that they don't seem to understand him when they first see him because he has a glorified body now. When she had said this, she turned and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her again the question that the angels had asked, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, and this is one of the greatest suppositions in history. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She still didn't believe. But notice the love that's there. She loves Jesus so much that she was going to go and pick up his dead body and carry it away herself. Love knows no limits to what it will attempt. And so she was willing, if she could find out, to go and get that body and take it away herself. And then Jesus said her name. He simply said, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni. And that melted her heart. And she fell at his feet and started to cling to his feet. And he said, cease clinging to me, Mary. Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren. Go to my brethren. She goes to bring them word. She goes to bring them word. This woman out of whom seven devils had been cast. This woman who had been liberated from terrible things. Now has the living God reveal himself to her. As having been walking in her midst for those past three years. Of course it was hard for the disciples to take this in. But when you come to this account of the resurrection and you begin to believe it with all of your heart, it makes all the difference in the world. I love John Updike's poem. Make no mistake about it, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse and the molecules re-knit and the animal acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his flesh and the mouths and fuddled eyes of his eleven apostles 
it was as his flesh ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, decayed, and then regathered out of the Father's might new strength to enclose. Let's not mock God with metaphor and analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a, a parable, a sign pointing to the faded credulity of an earlier age. Let's walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, non-papier mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. Now he says this because God in his miraculous powers raised Jesus from the dead in such a way that he could come through the shroud, that he could come through the stone, that he could appear and reappear, but he would no longer be limited to one time in one place. He's in Montreat this morning, right here in this church. Jesus is alive. He's out in Uganda this morning with some people who are suffering. He's behind the Iron Curtain today in the bamboo curtain in China where these missionaries have told people about Jesus. Jesus is alive and he's not limited to Herod's temple. He's not limited to the city of Jerusalem. He is with believers and he is with us here. Now, how does the practical aspects of this speak to us? What does it make? Well, he made the perfect offering for our sins in his own body on the tree. Day after day, week after week, year after year, as long as I've been in the gospel ministry, I've had to deal with people who loathe themselves, who have done things for which they feel so wretched that they wish to God they had never been born. They cannot understand how even God could love them. They don't think it's possible to start over again for the thousandth time. And this right here tells us that no matter how wretched you may feel, that the God who loves you like this, who loved you to go to the cross and die for your sins, that that God is the God who has the power to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus and to give you his power to be a new person in Christ Jesus. And you can respond in that faith. Then what about the pain that comes to us when there are those whom we know and love who die? I have spent my time at deathbeds and have been myself near to death on more than one occasion. Some years ago, there was some preacher who wrote some idiot article about that little prayer, and now I lay me down to sleep, saying it was bad for little children to pray it. And you know the one that says, if I should die before I wake up, pray the Lord my soul to take this, I ask for Jesus' sake. That's a good prayer. My mother taught me that prayer. And I can remember times when I didn't know whether I was going to wake up. And I prayed that prayer. And it helped me. And I recommend it to you. The terrible thing is that there are a lot of people 
who die before they ever wake up to why they ever live. But we live to be born again in Christ. We live to be dead to the old self and alive to Christ. And then when we have to face that pain which is so hard that comes when we see the dearest and most beloved face and form on earth that we've ever walked with, placed into a coffin and lowered into a grave, and we stand there until they place the dirt and they lead us away numb and crying, and we go back home and we can't get them out of our minds. We love them so much. But those who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And so he wants us to have a radiant faith knowing that this Christ is victor over death. Victor over death. That's what he wants us to remember and never, never, never forget it. In December of 1666, the Covenanters, those Scottish forebears of ours who took blood from their veins and signed the Covenant, and because of their covenanting faith were being persecuted for Jesus Christ, were being sentenced to death. And there was the youngest and one of the most gallant of the covenanters, a man by the name of Hugh McHale, M-C-K-A-I-L, Hugh McHale. He was in Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, and the high court had sentenced him to die at the toll booth. Four days later, he was to die. And when they led him out, chained from the presence of the court, the people waiting out in the streets saw this strong young man being led away. And realizing that he had only four more days to live, some of the women broke into tears and started to cry. And Hugh McHale looked at them. And Hugh McHale said to them, Good news. Good news, he said. Wonderful, wonderful good news. Only four more days. And I shall see the face of Jesus. And I'll be with my Lord forever. He was cheering the crowd up. Trust in God, he said. Only four more days. And I will be with Jesus forever. And so he speaks to us on this Easter Sunday here. Wanting us to know of his love. And wanting us to trust in the love that he has for us. Knowing that if we trust him, that death cannot conquer us, but that Christ has conquered death for us. There was an ancient Christian writer who wrote something I want to close with. He was God's man. He's talking about Jesus. He was God's man, but he was born of a woman in a cradle and cradled in a manger. Yet he was so much God that Heaven offered its congratulations by sending a multitude of angels. He was so much man that he became hungry. 
But he was so much God that he took a little boy's lunch and fed 5,000 people. He was so much man that he became tired and weary. But he was so much God that he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He was so much man that he fell asleep in a boat, but he was so much God that he rebuked the wind and the waves, and instantly they hushed. He was so much man that he died upon a cross, but he was so much God that he conquered death when he died. He was so much man that he was buried in a barred tomb, but he was so much God that he rose from the dead to live forevermore. We can only say with the writer of the book of Revelation, glory and honor and praise be unto our Lord forever and ever. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us, stand. Let us receive the benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be all glory, honor, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore.